0: Heavenly Father, as we do look forward, as we have just sung, to that day when our faith becomes sight, I pray in this interim time, now between the moment of our salvation and the moment of its full and manifest benefit and glory, that you would grant us eyes to see and ears to hear through the means of your word even this day. As we turn to your holy scriptures, open our hearts to the riches there contained, I pray whatever, Lord, life challenges us with in this meantime, that we would find, Lord, ample and sufficient grace through the proclamation of your holy scriptures. Bind our hearts together, Lord, in confessing you, are Lord. Join our affections with that which you love as we open your scriptures. And let us see, Lord, with the eyes of faith, how redemption, at perfectly planned and executed, in your perfect time, is real for us today by the power of the Holy Spirit, applying the truth of Jesus Christ, dead, buried, raised, and reigning to our hearts and lives, even this day. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a glorious privilege it is to open our scriptures together this morning. I hope you feel that way today and never grow hold to the Word of God, never take it for granted, but if you find yourself with the contempt of familiarity as it pertains to the Scriptures, repenting quickly and remembering the precious value of these words that we will touch on this day, let's do so by turning to Psalm 69, Psalm 69 in your Scriptures. As you're turning there, let me introduce today's message, the title for Our sermon today is ultimate interposition. Interposition, that act of one intervening on behalf of another to stand in between a situation and a person or two parties and to bring peace, to mediate. As we turn to Psalm 69, we see that David was praying for this kind of thing that the Lord would intermediate, that the Lord would interpose on his behalf. And we find in his worship song a heart cry. That every believer whose heart has been awakened to the fact of their own sin, their own need for salvation, can certainly relate to. And more than this, we find the answer to the heart cry of Psalm 69 coming in the future of David's experience in the past to ours in Jesus Christ, our incarnate Savior and Lord. Stand with me if you would, if you're able, with your word open to Psalm 69. And hear now the word of the Lord as it's delivered to us under this title to the choir master, according to lilies of David, verse 1. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire, for there it, where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out, my throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. Verse 7, for it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. That dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit in the gate, and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you. O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up. Or the pit, close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart, so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Verse 22, let their own table before them become a snare, and when they are at peace, let it become a trap. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, and let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents, for they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Verse 29, but I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify Him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive, for the Lord hears the needy and does not despise His own people who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise Him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it, and those who love his name shall dwell in it. This is the word of God. You may be seated. David cries out for ultimate interposition. Interposition, as illustrated in Psalm 69, contains the idea of coming between. Coming between two parters, parties in order to bring peace. To rescue one by intervening on his behalf, standing in between him and another. Noah Webster, the famous man behind the original Noah Webster dictionary, himself a believer, he comments in passing on the historic, or comments in passing in his historic dic- dictionary. And with reference to this concept, as he defines the word, he quote, How many evidences have we of divine interposition in favor of good men? How many evidences of we have divine interposition in favor of good men? In other words, how many times can we see through history and certainly the word, most primarily the word, where God has heard the prayer of men who have trusted in him and has interposed on their behalf? Surely Psalm 69 is one of those sterling examples that Webster must have had in mind. Here in this psalm is the doctrine of interposition applied in its ultimate instance. Interposition, that is to say, between man, a sinful man, and a righteous God. Namely, interposition as the concept of the gospel itself. David lifts his song of petition to the Lord pleading that God would intervene on his behalf. And whatever the provisional answer David may have received to his plea at this time, such as deliverance from Saul as David fled from him, or perhaps victory over a warring neighbor nation, whatever the provisional answer to David's prayer for salvation, the ultimate fulfillment of the cry of Psalm 69 would come in Jesus Christ the Son of David, who would interpose on behalf of David himself and indeed on behalf of all of the elect. Jesus Christ, the Son of David, would stand in their place, their place of deserving judgment and provide full and final atonement for their sins. Thus David's cry for God to interpose and save him is answered in the Incarnation. David's cry that God would intervene, would interpose and save him, is answered in the Incarnation. When God Himself takes on flesh, steps into history, and endures all of the sufferings described in Psalm 69 on behalf of David and all God's people for all time. David describes sufferings in the first person in Psalm 69. He laments on difficulties and circumstances that he is going through. I challenge you to look at them closely and compare them to the gospel. And I know that you will find that in each and every case, Jesus Christ stepped into those sufferings and endured them on David's behalf, thus securing for David and all of his people ultimate interposition. So this is the theme of our psalm today. As it unfolds before us, let us pray that the Spirit would give us grace to see, in fact, how Christ stood in in between us and the judgment, the justice, the destruction, the wrath of God that we deserved. As we do so, I beg you to consider the most important question in this psalm, which comes by rephrasing the final verse, verse 36, which says, The offspring of His servants shall inherit it. And those who love His name shall dwell in it. Speaking of the place of ultimate manifest interposition, where there is no more enemy. There is nothing that stands anymore between us and God. But we have full manifest consummate fellowship in the presence of God in Zion, in New Jerusalem. As we have celebrated this morning, at that moment, only those who love His name shall dwell therein. So the question stands today, ask yourself this question. Do you love the name of Jesus Christ? Do you love His name? And what does that mean? And secondly, by way of aim in this this message today, if you do love the name of Jesus Christ, may this message move us to join David's song of worship, realizing we have received the answer to his prayer. Consider that thought for a moment. If you are a believer in this room today, you and I have received the answer to David's prayer. The answer has come in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, working for us, interposition, intervening, mediating on our behalf, interceding for us. Here's a heading for two main points, dividing the psalm in two this morning as we consider it. The heading is Implications of divine interposition, given Psalm 69. What are the implications of divine interposition that we can glean by looking at Psalm 69? Number one, verses one through 21, the cry and the cost of interposition. Let us consider the cry of David for salvation and the cost of that salvation supplied and Christ intervening ultimately on his behalf. The second portion of the psalm, Verses 22-36, let us consider the cursed and the cured given interposition. So given the reality of the gospel, it tends to bifurcate, separate into two parts. It does, in fact, all of humanity into the cursed and the cured. And we see those two featured in the remainder of the psalm. First of all, the cry and cost of interposition. David employs in this psalm, Specifically, two redemptive historical categories, two themes of redemption that are featured throughout the scriptures, but he brings them into this psalm to help us understand these concepts. The first one that I want us to consider today is at the beginning, as it illustrates the beginning of this psalm, verses 1 and 2, it is indeed water judgment, that is water as a picture of judgment, the forces that the wicked deserve is featured to describe the plight that David feels. David feels as if he were drowning. And you may have held your breath for a long time and you know what that's like when uh, all of a sudden every fiber of your being cries out for life, for life. Worse yet you may may have been trapped under the water or you may have had that fleeting moment of fear when you are in a place feeling claustrophobic or gasping for breath or say even an asthma attack. You have the sense of, if I don't get my next breath, these moments will be the end of me. You cry out in anguish, desperation, underwater. Imagine this scene. Your feet are stuck in clay, quicksand. The harder you strive against that mud, the deeper you sink. So you resolve yourself, I better just stand here. Yet the tide of the ocean is getting higher and higher. It's lapping about your midsection. Now I feel it up to my neck. The tide rises further still until your only reprieve from certain drowning is the valleys between the waves. A wave crashes over you. You gulp and you sputter. You hold your breath. And then you breathe in between the next wave, and the wave splashes over you. This is the picture that David describes. Save me, O God, verse 1. For the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. This is a picture of desperate, claustrophobic, suffocating water judgment. Turn over a few verses. David recalls this imagery again in verses 14 and 15. He says, his heart cry is colored by this illustration. It's emphasized. It's brought dramatically to the fore when he says, Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Again, quicksand on his feet and water about his neck. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up. Or the pit close its mouth over me. This imagery that David employs reminds us of a redemptive theme through Scripture. The theme again of water judgment. Time and again, water, destruction by flood, is pictured in the Bible to illustrate the judgment that sinners deserve. Think of the first great instance of this in the beginning of Genesis. Verses 6-9 through record an amazing, water judgment such that it will never be repeated in the course of world history in quite that way. It was the time when in forty days of rain God flooded the entire earth and everyone gurgled to their watery death. Their demise by flood was the fate of every sinner alive that day in Noah's day save eight individuals who were preserved safely as through judgment. In the ark or chamber of salvation that God provided Noah and his family. Water judgment. Imagine standing outside the ark. The door is closing. Your feet are beginning to sink in the mire and the rain is coming down. And the water rises around your knees and then your neck. And you are gurgling, gasping for breath. And the ark is drifting into the distance. It's as if if David sees himself here. In a last ditch effort, he cries out for salvation and an arm reaches through the door and he joins Noah and his family and is spared from certain doom, certain death at the last possible moment. This is a kind of anguish of soul that David feels as he cries out in desperation. Now, Noah is not the only example that should come to mind as we think of this language in Psalm 69 but consider Moses himself. This is fresh in our mind uh, given our Hebrews 11 series. In faith, Moses' parents, Amram and Jacobet, they take this little ark, this vessel, again the same word is used in the original language to describe Noah's ark as the little basket that carried the infant and they smear it with a similar substance as we noted and they send it loose, they release it in the Nile. These waters are waters of judgment. They have received in death and drowning hundreds, innumerable little ones that have been cast into the Nile by Pharaoh's tyrannical hand. Yet there is one who is preserved through the waters of judgment in that tiny ark. His name is Moses, as I recall, which means being saved or drawn through water. So Moses himself being spared water judgment in the providential sovereign hand of God who would go on to be the agent of salvation and deliverance for God's people by God placing within within him this call and giving him the tools for that task is another picture of salvation through water judgment. This should come to mind. David longs to join the experience of Moses saved against all odds as he is drawn from the river in this amazing act of God's deliverance. David longs to share the experience of Noah when he and his family, the few faithful remaining on the earth are delivered from certain doom. David longs to share the experience of Jonah, although Jonah's experience is in the future, when he describes the waves washing over him. And in this ark, as it were, a great fish, God against all odds, swallows Jonah and preserves him three days and three nights, a picture of Christ to come safely in the belly of this incredible creature. And then God delivers him safely upon the shores to go to his prophetic task. David longs to join the experience of God's people who were delivered as through water when they crossed the Red Sea. But what happened to those who were not under the favor, of whom the blood was not on their doorposts, who were not in covenant standing with the righteous God, the sinners of that age represented by the Egyptians and their warring chariots, they were drowned in the waters of judgment. They collapsed upon them and God's enemies were destroyed. David knows because of his sin, if he stays in his place of desperate depravity, that he is God's enemy and the waters will come up higher and higher and eventually the tide and the mire will be his end. But there is hope in David's voice as he cries, because he has heard the word of God that God has provided salvation even in the midst of water judgment for Noah, for the Israelites, for Moses. And so perhaps God could be gracious to him and provide him judgment or provide him salvation even through his watery judgment as it were. This is the picture of salvation and judgment that we see employed in the prophecy and the poetry of Psalm 69. This is the cry. This is the cry of interposition. Save me lest I drown. Secondly, under cry and cost of interposition, consider the voice of David. We have heard David's voice in verses 1 and 2 as he cries out for salvation. We continue to hear his throaty roar as he cries out that God would intervene, verse 3. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. Later on in verses 5 and 6, he admits that he doesn't deserve God's mercy or grace. By definition, that is true, but it is evident in his life, and he confesses as much when he says, oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. David realizes the weight of his representative role, the federal headship, the representative headship call that he has as Israel's king. And in this place of deep and profound responsibility, he asks that the Lord might save him, and through his life evidence, his salvation, and that David may not bring to a watery, drowning death those who may use as an excuse the shame and sin in their king as cause for them to double down in their own sinful rebellion. He asks asks that he be delivered from his sin, and he asks on behalf of those who are dependent on him in some way, those who he is an example to and called to lead, that God would, against the character of his own sin, shine through him the message of salvation, so that those he leads may not be led astray, but indeed led to the Messiah. This is David's voice. But there are other voices in Psalm 69. There is, most principally, the Messiah's voice. You might ask yourself, how are we to distinguish when, in the text, the prophetic voice of Christ is speaking or singing, and the prophetic voice or the anguished cry of David is calling out. Well, think of this illustration. Have you ever heard a complicated or a kind of well-orchestrated, lengthy, musical, vocal score like a choir piece? If you listen to a choir production, a choral production, there are often, often, there are often different elements that take place within this piece of music. And if if you think of the voices, there are times when a solo is heard, an individual is singing. There are times when a different individual may sing a second solo. There may be a duet when the two are singing together. There may be a chorus where all the voices join in unison. This is a little like Psalm 69. There are times when David sings in solo, and I submit to you verses 5 and 6 is one of those times. After all, he cries out in confession of his own folly and sin. He says, let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. This is David crying out his voice in solo, admitting his own sin. Yet there are times when Messiah's voice, Christ himself, joined David. That is, David and the son of David join in chorus and sing together. More of that we'll see in our next point. But as David cries, I am weary with my crying out. In verse 3, my throat is parched, my eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me, those who attack me with lies. What I did not steal must I now restore. In John fifteen twenty-five, those words are directly attributed to Christ. David and the Messiah sing together, as it were, in this moment. And so I hope that illustration helps you to kind of distinguish the voices in Psalm 69. This method or a picture that I gave you of a choral piece, or sometimes in unison, sometimes in solo, sometimes in duet, if you will, is helpful for understanding and listening to all of this, nearly all of the Psalms, in fact. The Psalms contain these messianic choruses where the voice of Christ lifts up through the worship and begins to sing through the throat of the Son of David, through the pen of the Son of David, in the first person. David goes on to sing extolling God's mercy again in solo form, I submit, in verse 16. Answer me, O Lord, for your steadfast love is good. According to your abundant mercy, turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me, draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. In this case, we have redemption, ransom, and mercy that are featured in the voice of David. David, knowing his own sin, the law of God, the righteous dictates of Almighty and a perfect God, the Almighty, all-perfect God, having been brought to bear upon his soul, recognizes his deep and profound need for mercy and grace. He recognizes his captivity to this wickedness of heart that is drowning him in the destruction of his soul. And so he cries out for redemption, that is, buy me back from my captor, the devil of whom I am in his clutches as I in my sin are held uh, in chains to this wickedness. He also asks for ransom. Buy me, purchase me, pay the price in your mercy that I cannot supply to release me from this enemy, this oppressor, this captor who has me in chains. And so David cries out in these examples from the pages of Psalm 69 with a voice that we indeed can join. Can our voice join David as he cries out, restore me, I am a sinner. Let not others be put to shame through me. Yes, indeed. Your voice can join the voice of David in Solo. As he seeks that dishonor not be brought to others through them, but for God's sake that he might be saved. That his folly and wrongs would not be counted against him, but indeed that God would provide ransom, atonement, mercy, salvation, redemption for his sin. And so David's voice can join the the chorus, in this case, of all of the elect who cry out admitting their own sin and cry out for salvation. These uh, verses and these concepts can serve you well even in defending your faith. Let will just give you a brief example. David was a messed up guy. David was a man who needed God's grace. David evidenced great and profound issues in his Uh, life and his relationships and so on. You're familiar with them. He expounds in his repentance psalm in Psalm 51, the reason why he needed God's grace so much in part because he was an adulterer, a thief, a murderer, and so on. When I was on the street witnessing a couple weeks ago in Phoenix, I was approached by an atheist who said, I can't take the word of God seriously. I can't use that phrase. I can't take the Bible seriously. I can show you Authors of Scripture in the Bible, this individual said, who basically are borderline psychotic. They had real issues. And the thought came to me as I was ta- in interacting with this individual, you need to consider the ultimate author of this book. If you look at David's life, and if that were held out as some virtuous example, if David was the best that we could come up with for a Savior to interpose on our behalf, all of us would be psychotically lost. All of us would have no hope indeed. But David and his, uh, and the agency that he served, the example that he uh, uh, served and, and uh, put forth in Scripture was not himself and his merit, his experience, but indeed his son, his lineage, Christ to come. The ultimate author of Scripture, even Psalm 69, is not David. The ultimate author is the Holy Spirit of God who moves David an otherwise wicked sinner to confess prophetically hope in his lineage to come. Independent of his works, independent of his efforts, one who would come, the son of David, to intervene on his behalf would save him. I ask this individual on the street, is Shakespeare any less of an author because of how wicked Othello is? Shakespeare is a great author, would you agree? Yes, indeed. He is celebrated among the best in all of Western literature. Yet Shakespeare has some of the most profound, wicked, psychotic, if you will, villains with real issues. Why is Shakespeare celebrated when his literature has these examples? It's because he, as the ultimate author, is able to craft a story that is profound and is appreciated. He is sovereign, if you will, as the author over the villain Othello, as an example. So it is with the Lord. He is sovereign over the narrative of history. The story, the record, the account, the redemptive picture, the whole scope of history gives glory to its author. Yes, there are villains. David was one. If you are saved, you were one. If you are not in Christ today, you are one. But these deep and profound issues that villains against the gospel have, when they are saved, they give profound glory, in this case, by reflection to the author of Scripture. And so we see the genius of, of the Holy Spirit's authorship of Psalm 69 in taking a man with deep and profound sin issues and through his life displaying the profound power of the gospel to save. Water judgment, David's voice. Let's move to Messiah's voice. The cry and cost of interposition. Remember what we said in introduction to this message. Perhaps the most profound observation that I made in my study today or my study in preparation for this message today was that God himself takes on flesh, steps into history, and endures all of the sufferings described in Psalm 69 on behalf of David and in so doing answers his prayer and we are also an answer to David's prayer when he suffers on our behalf. And herein we find the Messiah's voice. Consider verse 4. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. In John 15, we find fulfillment of this text. We discover the voice of who is speaking when we read in the gospel, verse 25. These things I have spoken. Excuse me, wrong chapter. In John 15, again, as we move forward into the New Testament, we see examples of these words coming alive prophetically through their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. But the words, let me back up to verse 23. Whoever hates me, Jesus is speaking, hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. Verse 25. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. They hated me without cause. Again, Psalm 69, 4. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. The voice of the Messiah comes forth from Psalm 69, echoed by our Lord himself. In John 1, 11, at the beginning of his gospel, we find... A recognition of the incarnate Son in his glory and in his passion, anticipated in John's words when he says, verse 11, He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Therefore, in Psalm 69, 69 we find the voice of the Messiah coming to the fore in verse 8 when he says, I have become a stranger to my brothers. An alien to my mother's sons. Again, in the very next verse, for zeal for your house has consumed me. And again, in the book of John, the very next chapter, chapter 2, after the temple cleansing, we have an echo, we have a citation, in fact, of Christ recounting these very words. And of Christ in his actions and the disciples' acknowledgment recounting these very words. After, David, after uh, the son of David, Jesus cleanses the temples. The temple, he says in verse 16, he told those who sold pigeons, take these away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So again, the disciples recognize in this act of Jesus by his sovereign authority, cleansing the temple, removing the reproach of those who are profiting for selfish gain. We find in this action that the disciples recognize the voice of the Messiah coming forth in history, echoing Psalm 69, which had said for zeal, for your house has consumed me. These examples are throughout the text. For reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen upon me. It's cited in Romans 15.3. Later you recall in our text in Matthew 27 which we have been studying lately. Verse 21 comes alive. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. And touching just briefly in our text. We know that this is the voice of the Messiah in Psalm 69. When we read again in Matthew, in Matthew's account, as Jesus in his crucifixion and his passion is suffering, says, And they went to a place, verse 33, called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Verse 34, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Later in verse 48, and one of them at once ran and took a sponge. Filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And as Jesus cries out, so does the Messiah from Psalm 69 They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. So we have considered the cry and the cost of interposition again the sufferings that david details in psalm 69 christ has come in Cal- on calvary and has endured has suffered by substitution every single one he has become a stranger to his brothers he was rejected by his own an alien to his mother's sons he was the one who was destroyed by the floodwaters of judgment sweeping over him on the cross as he became sin for us. He was the one who became weary and crying out and in his extreme thirst with parched throat cried out to the Lord echoing another Psalm, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was his eyes that grew dim on Calvary as he waited for God Waited and waited, but the just hand of God's wrath was brought down upon him, and he must wait three whole days before the resurrection would come. But in the meantime, he endured the great agony of the atrocities that we deserved. The great anguish and sorrow that we deserve. He has borne our reproach. Our dishonor covered his face. They gave him poison for food and him sour wine to drink. He was broken so that we may be whole and he, was suffer- and he suffered so we may go free. As David has prayed, let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. Think of how that prayer is answered and the terms are entirely reversed through the son of David. The dishonor that Christ suffered on the cross, in fact, removed the shame of those who trusted in His work on Calvary to save. We have the cry and the cost of interposition, prophetically, gloriously, poetically, proclaimed in the first half of Psalm 69. And let us close with the second half then. Psalm 69, 22-36 expound upon the cursed and the cured, given interposition. Given Christ has come, given that He has Drunk down the poison cup. The psalm concludes in verse 22 by detailing two categories, bifurcating, separating two classes, as it were, of individuals in light of this truth. The first are those who who will never sing Psalm 69. And the second is those who will. But before we consider them, let us consider the second redemptive category. We talked about water judgment that David employed to illustrate the crying cost of interposition. But let us consider the book of life or the book of the living as the second redemptive theme that he employs to illustrate the second half of the sermon. We find this coming to the fore in verse 28. In judgment, David cries out, for those who reject the Messiah to come, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled Among the nations, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. Excuse me. And here we have this picture of the book of life. A few references, quickly for you to study on at another time. Numbers one one through forty six, Exodus thirty two thirty two, Ezekiel thirteen nine, and then throughout the book of Revelation three fifteen thirteen eight seventeen eight. Chapter 20, verses 12 and 15. Chapter 21, verse 27. And these examples, we have the book of life featured. And you see a connection. In the ancient Israel, as they were traveling, per senses there was a register. There was an accounting of how many were in the fold, of how many were in the nation. And so this was the book of the living, as it were. So in t- you have to interpret in context, but there are times such as verse 28 when it says, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. And the idea is let their life be snuffed out. Let judgment come. Let them be killed justly for their crimes against the living God. That is blotted out of the register among the living. Yet this picture becomes uh, uh, transcends this one example and metaphor of the book of the census and record of the living among the Israelites, and it becomes a picture of God's book, His predestined and sovereign record of all who are truly His. And the glorious truth that comes uh, to our attention throughout Scripture is those who are written in that book cannot, in fact, be blotted out. Those who are indelibly penned by God's sovereign hand as the elect, who are written into the Lamb's book of life before time has even begun. Those are the ones who will join David in song, in Psalm 69, confessing their sin and their salvation in the Son of David. But what of those who never sing Psalm 69? Well, David is quite candid in his song as he declares... Verse 22, let their own table before them become a snare. And when they're at peace, let it become a trap. That would normally be represented by table. That is provision, peace, and prosperity. Provision, peace, and prosperity represented by the table set before you, a meal of uh, celebration and sustenance. That which represents these things, let it indeed become a trap. Let their food and drink be poisoned as it were. This is the plight of those who do not recognize the voice of Psalm 69, crying out, humbly seeking God for salvation from the floodwaters of judgment. Those, in verse 23, who uh, do not fall into the category of joining David in song, as it were. David cries, let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them, let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation, let no one dwell in their tents. And these words are cited, word for word, verse 25. In the case, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament is cited by Peter himself in Acts 120, with reference to Judas, the betrayer of Jesus Christ. Peter says of him, may, him, may his camp be a desolation. Judas representing the reprobate, all those who reject the Messiah indeed are complicit in their heart with the betrayal of the same. Let their camp be a desolation. Let them find no place to dwell. Let them be banished. Let them be judged. Let the flood waters indeed overcome them, like, Noah, like Noah's day, or the Egyptians who, who pursued the Israelites. Verse 26 For they persecute him whom you have struck down. They recount the pain of those you have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Earlier in verse 22, Romans eleven nine cites this very text to illustrate those who lie outside the confines, the safety, the refuge of salvation. And so the Bible is very candid and very clear. There are only two camps. Those who trust in the Messiah for salvation and those who will be drowned in the floodwaters of judgment if they do not repent. And of whom their camp, of whom it is said their camp will be come a desolation, and they will be blotted out from among the living. Finally, and in closing this morning, what of those who do? What of those who do sing, join the voice of David in the first person, as it were, in Psalm 69, crying out for salvation? What of them? Will a song in glorious celebration and hopeful notes concludes answering this question verse 20 30 I will praise the name of the Lord with a song I will magnify him with thanksgiving this will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull with horns and hooves David anticipates a day where this psalm will be fulfilled in such a way that answer to his prayer will transcend even the temporal sacrifices that is praise and thanksgiving for the Messiah to come is even more magnificent more ma- uh, glorious than the sacrificial system of old thus David anticipates the perfect sacrifice to come which we have read of in our series in Hebrews and expounded in Hebrews 10 and 11 that the full and final and satisfactory once for all payment for sin the atonement of Jesus Christ says come and so magnifying the Lord and praising him that this is what pleases him The bull and the ox of old could only prefigure in shadowy form what we know in substance in Christ. Notice what David echoes in verse 32. Notice the attitude with which he comes, making his celebratory praise. When the humble see it, they will be glad. You who seek God, let your hearts revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. Those who join in David's chorus in celebrating salvation from water judgment, who are they? They are those who are akin to the hearts that have been affected and proclaimed in the Beatitudes, have been affected in powerful ways as we see illustrated in the Beatitudes of Matthew chapter 5. They are the humble, in David's words, those who seek God. They recognize their need. They are the poor in spirit. They are the meek. They are his own people. They are the ones who were once prisoners But recognizing their great frailty, their intrinsic neediness, their great depravity and sin, they are the ones who cry out and join the voice of Psalm 69 in celebration that their salvation has come. And so David continues proclaiming a place that will yet arrive for all God's people. He says, verse 34, let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. And notice, now the water has Uh, transcended uh, its picture of judgment, and now it itself, the the seas that once once signaled the chaotic doom of the sinner, are now joining in the praise of the Almighty. Why? Because this is a new heaven and new earth that David celebrates and foresees in this psalm. In verse 35, For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and people shall dwell there and possess it. David's song of faith looks forward to a future of a new society, a new establishment, a new city, a new civilization, a new relationship, a new social order where God's kingdom is established and there is no more sin, sorrow, or mourning anymore as our worship text from Revelation 21 this morning proclaimed. And finally, verse 36. The offspring of his servants shall inherit it and those who love his name shall dwell in it." This is the future of those who sing with David, Psalm 69, relating to him as a sinner, his poverty, his humility, and his neediness, and looking forward to his savior, to our savior, Jesus Christ, son of David, the great uh, king who stooped low to interpose, taking on flesh, enduring the sufferings that Psalm 69 proclaimed to stand between us and certain judgment and secure for us an eternal hope. And so I ask you this day, do you love his name? Do you love the name of Jesus? If you love his name that means you realize what his name represents. sole, exclusive, powerful, eternal salvation by his blood. If you love His name, it means you truly believe that He became flesh and dwelt among us, bore our sin on His torn back, and secured for us eternal hope. If you love His name, you love His work. If you love His name, you love the cross. If you love His name, you believe that Jesus is the architect, the Lord, and the Savior of all history. Remember this day, if you do love his name, this glorious thought. David's song is a song of worship. And we can join in that heart of glorious praise when we realize that we have received the answer to his prayer. The Messiah has come. And if you are a believer in this room today, he dwells with you, even in your heart. Let us close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for the promise and the hope of the Messiah that David proclaimed, he sang of and looked to. We thank you, Lord, that that promise has come in time and that Jesus Christ is now for every believer confessing faith in you in this room, our Lord and Savior. Lord, help us to love your name. Help us to love you even more. Having heard your word, I pray that it would take deep root within us and that it would spring forth into fruit for your glory. I pray that you would draw those within the hearing of this word today who do not as of yet know you to confess with humility, desperation, neediness as a prisoner of their sin that they need salvation. They need the mercy that comes only through the Son of David, Jesus Christ. And may they find your name precious and may they join us one day in that new city of Judah. When God saves all of Zion and ushers us in to his presence perfectly and eternally. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.